And another thing And another thing Welcome to another episode of And Another Thing Podcast. I'm your co-host, Tony Clement. First, we've got to thank our sponsors, of course, starting with our presenting sponsor, that is to say, Municipal Solutions, Ontario's leading MZO firm. They're great. John Mutton and the gang are great for development approvals, permit expediting, planning services with the municipalities, engineering services, architectural services, even things like minor variances and land severances, and of course, building permits. So you go to municipalsolutions.ca and they will be there for all of your municipal solutions needs. We want to thank our terrestrial radio sponsor, Hunter's Bay Radio, 88.7 The Bay in Muskoka. Every Saturday morning, they have a whole range of various podcasts that they rebroadcast, including and another thing podcast. You can go to huntersbayradio.com for that if you're not in the listening area. We also want to thank our sponsor, the Harris Legacy.ca. That is to say, the new Mike book about Mike Harris, the former Ontario Premier, entitled The Harris Legacy Reflections on a Transformational Premier. You can order it at theharrislegacy.ca. They are in print. They are soon to be distributed to bookstores. Of course, we had the publisher, rather the editor of that particular book on our podcast uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, But uh, this is a book that has a number of different essays, including from David Frum, Jack Mintz, Gordon Miller, the former environment commissioner, David Hurley, the, the liberal uh, what do I call them? Eminence Grise. Yes, that's what I want to call them. Uh, all edited by Alistair Campbell. Again, go to the harrislegacy.ca to order yours. And finally, and this has some bearing on our guests as well, but here we go. If you enjoy this show, we think you'll love the podcast Not Reserving Judgment from our friends at the Canadian Constitution Foundation, a charity dedicated to a freer Canada. In each episode, hosts Josh DeHaas, Joanna Barron, and Christine Van Gyne update you on the latest legal news, tell you about legal stories that you might have missed, and give their bad legal takes of the week where they take a lighthearted look at the legal opinions that didn't quite land. Not Reserving Judgment is not just for lawyers. It's a show for all Canadians who care about their rights and freedoms. The hosts aren't afraid of controversial topics. In some recent episodes, they've talked about uh, residential school denialism, Benjamin Netanyahu's constitutional reforms, and proposals to require parental consent for childhood gender transition. Find Not Reserving Judgment wherever else you get your podcasts and download the latest episode today. Speaking of Joanna and Christine, that is, uh, in fact, who we have on the program today, but for a a different reason. First of all, let me say a little bit about Joanna and Christine. Uh, Joanna is the executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm sure we'll get into a little bit of that. And Christine Van Gyne is a director, uh, as well as having a show on the news forum, Canadian Justice. I think that's what it's called, right, Christine? That's right. That's right, Canadian Justice. Uh, As some of you 
may know, I have another gig, uh, not just and another thing podcast, but I've got a show called Boom and Bust on the news forum. And Christine has her own show on that as well. Both Joanna and Christine are with us today because not just about this podcast, not reserving judgment that I just advertised to you, but a new book is coming out very, very soon called Pandemic Panic, How Canadian Government Responses to COVID-19 Changed Civil Liberties Forever. Have I got that right? You've got it. And it's actually out now available to order on Amazon right this minute. Okay. Order it now. Go to Amazon or perhaps some other sites as well. I don't know. But uh, if it's on Amazon, uh, a lot of people know how to do that. And it will be in physical book form at some point, will it not? Uh, It is now. It is now. I have one sitting right beside me. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, so let's get into this topic. Um, Obviously, I'd love to know, just to start off with, maybe Joanna, you can start us off. How did this book come about? What what was uh, the thing that sparked your interest in telling this story? So Christine and I were working together throughout the pandemic. I've been with the Canadian Constitution Foundation since 2016, executive director since 2019. And I uh, recruited Christine to come over and join us on the the light side. I was going to say dark side, but the good side in 2020. So the whole pandemic, we were kind of in the trenches together. Um, And about a year and a half into the pandemic, we started to notice how things that had happened, like just three months earlier, we were starting to forget about. Like we forgot about uh, a man who was skating by himself in Calgary, getting tasered by police or cherry blossoms getting roped off or all of these other surreal things. And we realized like we have to write a book about the impact of the pandemic on civil liberties, because if we don't, we're going to forget. And if we're going to forget, everybody else is going to forget. And so we started writing the book. And when did we start writing it? Summer 2021? Yeah, I think two years ago, we started in earnest, but it has been a a long process. uh, And there's still things that we think, oh, you know, I told I. I forgot that that happened. We need to, we need to put that in the second printing of the book. There's so many bizarre stories, isn't there? I mean, it was, it, it, first of all, it was such a bizarre time generally, and a lot of people suffered. We know that, but uh, it, it, yeah, the, these, these stories just kept happening across the country and around the world, didn't they? Yeah, I think that there are kind of strange stories from everywhere. And the way we set the book up is, uh, it's not it's not chronological because I think that that's not and that's not a narrative that's that's really interesting to read. What we do is we break the book out into the different fundamental freedoms that we have. So freedom of expression, freedom of religion, f- freedom of assembly, uh, democratic rights, equality rights, and then we have a few areas that are really specific to the pandemic. So the use of the Emergencies Act by the Trudeau government. And then we have a section dedicated to the legal status of vaccine passports and vaccine mandates, because I think it wouldn't be a book about the pandemic if we didn't talk about the vaccines. So we that's kind of how we approached this project. And I think it worked out really well. And one of the nice things about law that I love is that each and every case is a story of an individual who was impacted by the whatever this government action was. So there's a, each chapter starts 
with the story of a case of an individual or a family that was impacted by the government responses to the pandemic, whether it be, you know, disabled people in in Ontario who weren't able to access the gym, who worked with a lawyer to have their gym reopened so that they could do their physical therapy, or whether it's a woman in Newfoundland who was prohibited from attending her own mother's funeral because right. of travel restrictions. Each one of these is a story. And I think that those stories really paint the picture very colorfully about what happened. And that's an important point because this is a book about legal decisions, but it's uh, but you're not trying to just write a, a book. It is not an academic legal scholarly book. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I, I gotta ask, I can ask each of you, what was the most surprising thing that you learned as a result of the research in the book and the stories that you heard? Uh, what's the most surprising thing that we learned like about the law or, okay, here's the most surprising thing that we learned. And this only really seemed to crystallize after the bit, the book was done. So as you may know, Tony, as you, as you certainly know, given your experience, but maybe not everybody who's listening to this knows, uh, one exceptional feature of the Canadian constitution is that we have what's called a limitations clause section one, which says, yes, uh, your rights may be violated, but if they're violated in a way that is justified in a free and democratic society, um, we will the, the law will stand. And one thing that was really shocking to us was you would expect that a lot of the different um, infringements on our freedoms would fall under this category when they showed up in courts, right? right? That a judge would say, yes, we violated your right to freedom of religion or your freedom of movement or your right to equality. But given the exigencies of the public health emergency on balance, it was justified. Um, but shockingly, judges were loath to even go there. And instead, what you saw was in many cases, judges said that the right wasn't even violated. So there was no engagement of the right to freedom of movement for a woman who was uh, uh, forbidden from attending her mother's funeral because her mother okay. lived in a different province. Um there was no violation of the right to freedom of religion in various church lockdowns. Um, and this, we, we thought about this and we think that this is just a way of avoiding, um, you know, grappling with some of the really difficult issues that a lot of these restrictions raised and of judges avoiding them from grappling with the fact that if they didn't give our rights effect when we were in situations where you literally had to, you know, show a vaccine passport to go and sit down and have a coffee. Um, these things that are just obviously restrictions of ordinary rights, um, they wouldn't have to grapple with some of the underlying substantive tougher questions. Um, right. And so I, I have to say this is fairly shocking because if you look at the sort of severity of, you know, we before 2020, we never imagined that our ability to have Christmas dinner or go to a birthday party or go to a church service, that this would be something that the government would very uh, sort of severely restrict. Um, and the fact that the judiciary ended up having very little to say about it um, is just a total indictment of our, I would say, our, our culture of liberty. <laughs> You know, uh, let me just jump in here because that's very close to the thing that I found the most surprising too, because I, I would have, I, I mean, it, there were different phases during this whole pandemic situation. So the first phase 
uh, I was really shocked at how quickly people would defer to government as experts and uh, as the not very good protectors of our rights and freedoms, right? And then it all kind of by the end, the back end came came to a boil amongst certain some some people anyway. So it was just a, such a bizarre thing to me, though, that uh, if if somebody from government were to say, "I'm sorry, you're not allowed to do that uh, because we say so, and because we've listened to an expert," uh, oh, okay, well, I guess I can't do that then. You know, uh, th- to me that that is quite jarring that it happened so quickly and easily. I don't, I don't know whether that makes sense to you guys or not. Yeah. Well, I mean, how did it ever make sense? Somebody brought this up in our YouTube live tonight, the whole thing. And and I did it because I was told to do it. Wear a, a mask when you're walking to a restaurant, walk into the restaurant, sit down at a table, take off your mask. <laughs> yeah. That makes no sense. No sense. <laughs> no. And, and, and I ended up, uh, you know, I always had a, a beverage in my hand so I could keep my mask down and I'd sip it ever so slowly over the course of a whole evening. Right. You know, things like that because we're human beings and, you know, behavioral psychology does kick in. And uh, so if we think that something is absurd, we're going to find ways to uh, absent ourselves from uh, going ahead with an absurdity. Right. Yeah. I remember one of my tweets that went viral was, restaurants were closed in Toronto and I happened to have a flight somewhere. I forget where I was headed, uh, but I was at the airport, which are federal jurisdiction. So the restaurants in the airport were open. So I took a picture of myself drinking a, a coffee, having a lunch without mask and, you know, in, in an open restaurant in Toronto where all the other restaurants were closed. And I said, I guess COVID doesn't spread in yeah. federal jurisdiction. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I know. It's just, when you look back on it, it, it is kind of absurd. Now I do, as a former health minister, both federally and provincially, I give them a little bit of slack uh, because they really, at the beginning end, they didn't really know what they were up against. They, there was very little uh, formulated knowledge of, of how, um, you know, the morbidity uh, of, of these cases and, and, and what we were going up against. By year two and a half, I have less, uh, you know, less grace for some of the decisions they were still making, you know. So um, that, that's all part of it too. So I guess my, my, my next question is, how much of this is going to be with us long term in terms of the jurisprudence and the decisions that were made? And look, there could be another pandemic next year, right? Who knows? Nobody knows. Uh, and is is that part of your concern that some of the some of these court cases were decided in such a way that it'll be even easier next time uh, for lockdowns and for other? Uh, for other diminutions of rights that uh, have not been properly vetted by society. Yeah, I think that that's one of the big concerns with this idea that rights are not even engaged by government action. Um, the examples Joanna gave were great, but there's there's even more, right? The courts found that prohibitions on social gatherings, like the baby birthday parties or these 
Christmas parties or, or just Thanksgiving dinners that those, that, that doesn't engage your right to freedom of assembly. Of course it does. It's only in a totalitarian regime where you can't have the concept of family, right? Where you can't have a social gathering. That's, that's we our courts had just never considered this issue and and when it was open for them to consider they said no rights violation and the quarantine hotel is another example we challenged that as well and the the plaintiffs that we worked with in that case were all traveling for compassionate reasons like to help a loved one with surgery or to attend a parent's funeral and the the court said this is a first world problem that these people traveling to bury a parent you know, they're, they just have some sort of privilege that they don't want, that they just felt like leaving. Um, mm-hmm. But th- I think that this has opened the door for the courts to say in future cases, you know, rights just aren't engaged. And I think the, the COVID situation is a novel and unique circumstance, but I have a lot of fear about this trend, the government following or the courts, you know, pr- following this trend in the future. But for me, the biggest implication was actually the use for for the on the forever topic on the what's really going to have the longest term impact was the use of the emergencies act because this is legislation that's never been used before it's first time ever used this is the successor to the war measures act which was used to intern japanese canadians it was used in response to the October crisis, it was badly abused and it was recreated with all these guardrails in place only to be abused again by Trudeau Jr. And it was used in response to a domestic protest, which could have been, which was peaceful and nonviolent, although of course, extremely disruptive and noisy and Uh, It could have been resolved, though, under the ordinary police powers using existing law. And now that this glass has been broken on the use of the Emergencies Act, I think we really need to be careful about when governments ever could use that again, because that's a very powerful and dangerous tool. It allows the prime minister to create new criminal law by essential essentially executive order. The cabinet and the prime minister just create new crimes out of thin air without prior notice or parliamentary debate. That type of power is the most, the greatest power in any democracy. That's, it's wild that it was used in this way. Uh, Joanna, is, is that your concern as well? Yeah. And I think basically there are parts of precedent that could be picked and chosen, as you say, in any future pandemic or, you know, other emergency that, for example, in the quarantines hotel case where you have individuals um, traveling for compassionate reasons that are uh, forced to quarantine a government hotel for about $2,000 and you have a judge on record saying this doesn't engage constitutional protections and it's a first world economic problem how many things in that kind of range of severity could another judge, because as you know, in a common law system, judges, you know, kind of riff off each other's precedent. Um, That is a very bad precedent. And that's part of the reason why at the CCF, we tried to be extremely strategic in which cases we chose, um, because we were aware that if we crashed and burned, that we had the potential to create these precedents. Um, And so we only, uh, you know, took cases that we thought strategically 
statistically um, pose the greatest chance of success. So for example, when we challenged the vaccine passports, we challenged BCs, which had no workable medical exemptions, because um, uh, we understood that for judges, it would be hard, harder to explain away something like discriminating against the right of a teenage girl who medically couldn't get her second dose of the Pfizer vaccine, um, or a woman with complex disabilities, that was going to be a lot more compelling to judges um, than just, uh, you know, the general population, which, to be clear, our position was vaccine passports, uh, in any circumstance, were always constitutionally uh, suspect. Um, But we have a sense of things that get judges' attention and that doesn't. even at that, though, sometimes judges shocked us. We're, <laughs> we're still waiting for the decision in that case. Yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, um, and I, I guess maybe just to do a little bit of an off-ramp here, Joanna, and uh, talk a little bit about the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Uh, I, just for dis- fair disclosure, I'm also on the board of that uh, body, but uh, maybe tell, tell folks a little bit about what, uh, what you do there. Yeah, so we are a legal charity that defends fundamental freedoms in courts of law and public opinion. Um, And so basically, we sue the government when they violate your rights, we take them to court, we like to focus especially on free expression, um, open markets, uh, the the federal sort of division of powers uh, and the proper allocation of powers between the provinces, um, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. Uh, we appear in the Supreme Court a couple of times a year as intervener. We take cases of first instance. We have run some of the biggest charter challenges in Canadian history. Um, in addition to that, education is also um, something we're very passionate about. So we have a free course that you can sign up for at the ccf.ca slash learn um, on constitutional law um, and uh, with an emphasis on liberty. And we'll have another course coming out soon on free speech. Uh, Christine runs our YouTube channel and puts out tons of content and analysis. Um, so yeah, we are fighting every day for a freer Canada. And Christine, um, I've already done the plug for not reserving judgment. Anything you want to add on that one? Uh, I I love doing the podcast. It's, yeah. it's a lot lighter than some of the other content that we work on. Uh, my YouTube channel, I of course summarize our cases, give updates on on our constitutional challenges, different laws, and go- different government actions. I host Canadian Justice, where I talk to leaders in all kinds of areas of law, whether it's employment law, family law, criminal law, corporate commercial, competition law, the whole gambit. Um, but you know, that show takes a lot of work to prepare for because I need to speak to some of the leading experts in their field and in areas that I might not even have ever practiced law in. But not reserving judgment, what we do on that podcast is we kind of look at some news headlines, we talk about news headlines uh, of legal cases, and then we do my favorite part of the show is our bad legal takes where kind of rip apart people on who've been posting dumb yeah. stuff on Twitter and usually they're law professors. They, they have, have the worst opinions. I don't know. Like it's like a requirement of tenure is like having the worst perspective on everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well that reminds me of law school. So yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> there was I one law prof I had, uh it was in a securities introduction to securities law. 
And uh, she unfortunately thought that junk bonds were called jump bonds. <laughs> and we, we, as the law students, had to correct our professor about what the, the correct terminology. So uh, yet another example of how experts sometimes get it wrong, right? Yeah, seriously. So uh, just getting back to the book for a second, I, I you know, do you, um, uh, maybe just ask uh, Christine, do you, do you come away with, with um, concerns about our justice system then? Is this something that we, sh- we should be worried about as a result of some of these cases? I think the thing, as I said, that, I, that we're worried about is this, this trend that rights aren't even engaged this trend that we'd seen before the pandemic, this real willingness to use Section 1 to justify limits on our rights. Um, But one of the things beyond the justice system that I was concerned with and that we talk about in the book is our culture of civil liberties in Canada. And I found that people were just really shockingly deferential to government. Um, People were willing to engage in kind of disturbing behavior, like snitching on their neighbors. Um, I I have an anecdote in the book about a friend of mine who was having a birthday party for her one-year-old, and it was during one of these lockdown periods where you were allowed, I think, 10 people. And so she was having an outdoor birthday party because the outdoor limit was 10 people. So it was five mommies and it was a one-year-old birthday party in December in Toronto. So she's yeah. really already trying super hard. Uh, so five mommies and five babies. She's at the limit. But then she invited a music teacher to like play little instruments for the babies. Right. And that was what really <laughs> was the problem. And some woman who already didn't like her had some pre-existing grudge against her as some neighbors do for random reasons. She called the police. She yeah. called the police on, on this woman for having some babies in her driveway in the winter. And that's just really disturbing behavior. And I think that there was this way of thinking that was, you're only allowed to think the approved way. And if you go outside of that, everyone must condemn you and, and say what a monster you are. You're killing grandmas because you wanted to, you know, celebrate your one-year-old's birthday. And these, these overdone police powers, which we saw the government really, really willing to engage in, and that escalated very quickly, that the police suddenly started giving these enforcement powers. We saw that in in Quebec to, I think, the most severe degree, but we saw it in Ontario as well. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, if you give these really, if you create these really strict rules, they can easily be weaponized by malicious people in the public who want to use them for their own purposes. And look, my friend is fine. She's like, uh, she's fine. She's doing just fine. But there's, there's lots of people who have a much more fractured relationship with police. There's communities that have had more challenging relationships with the government. And if when when we have these really strict rules that can be weaponized, they're more likely to be used against underprivileged or marginalized communities. And- oh yeah, that's that's one of the points you make, isn't it? That uh, that uh, uh, you know uh, there was a lot of concern during the pandemic that uh, marginalized groups were uh, were were affected more so 
as a result of the pandemic. But you, you guys make the point that they were also the ones sort of preyed upon by officiousness and by police action, et cetera, right? Yeah. And I think, I mean, if you look at the statistics, it was racialized communities were more likely to uh, have lower vaccine uptake. Um, And that meant that those racialized communities could not go into restaurants. And I just, you know, I have this in the book, but it's like, where are all of these proponents of equality who always tell us that the that outcomes matter that the even if the law is facially neutral it requires everyone to be vaccinated where are all these advocates for substantive equality saying but the outcome is different along racial lines therefore this law is racist and like look i do have race race based concerns about those those laws but where are these racial justice advocates who tell us for example, you know, math is racist. We were just in the Ontario Court of Appeal on this case where teachers union sort of is arguing that a math test for teacher candidates is racist because some races do better or worse at right. math. But sure, yeah. keeping racialized people out of restaurants and firing them from their jobs, that's A-OK, like absolute silence from these social justice warriors on that front. Isn't this why, Joanne, I'm posing this to you, isn't this, this is precisely why we need laws that protect our freedoms because sometimes, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, it's unpopular. And if we left it up to the public will uh, and what is popular one day, uh, then of course that can lead to very egregious results that it can affect people for a long time forward and could create a precedent that uh, is indeed uh, injurious to everybody's rights is you know basically people are hypocrites right they're 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 all in favor of of enforcing the law if it's if it's the point of view that they agree with but not so much if it's something they disagree with that's why we need laws that function properly Yeah, totally. And look, we know that the lockdown measures and the public health measures and the vaccine passports were extremely popular with the public. And to be honest, uh, this book doesn't talk about politics that much, but it is relevant to mention that the prime minister in the snap election called in fall 2021, he really doubled down on the wedge politics and the wedge he tried to drive between him and Aaron O'Toole was exclusively trying to find some daylight on the severity like that O'Toole didn't have vaccine mandates, uh, didn't support them as verifice. And he really tried to demonize unvaccinated people, as you'll remember, as uh, racist and misogynist um, and brought in a lot of policies like uh, bans on protests around hospitals um, when the fact is that it's already criminalized to prevent a healthcare worker from attending work. So this was pure sort of symbolic identity politics. Um, but you would expect, as you say, in a constitutional democracy, which is not just based on the sheer will of the people, but also on the will of people as, you know, that have sort of pre-committed themselves to a certain constitutional order, which we agreed to in our constitution and in the charter in 1982. Um, And specifically, the reason we have a constitution is that we understand that particularly in times of emergency, we tend to be governed by fear um, and we tend to be governed by convenience. 
The trouble is, is that we learned that judges are swimming in the same water as basically the Democratic mobs are. They were susceptible to the same errors in reasoning. Because I totally agree with you. At the beginning of the pandemic, it was scary. There was a lot of information we didn't have. You could give a lot of these measures a pass. But almost two years into the pandemic, when you have the government bringing an order in council to ban unvaccinated people from traveling on planes or or trains or anything federally mandated, at that point, when you already know that the vaccine doesn't prevent transmission or infection, you're clearly dealing with something else. And yet again, that was a popular measure. Yeah, um, it was. Yeah. yeah. That's all the time we have today. I want to thank our our guests, uh, the co-authors of Pandemic Panic, How Canadian Government Responses to COVID-19 Changed Civil Liberties Forever. I'm speaking with Joanna Barron and Christine Van Gein. Uh, you can pick up their book now uh, from Amazon, and I'm sure you're going to have lots of book launches and other talks, but uh, thanks for coming on the program today. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. But I do want to thank, again, our presenting sponsor, Municipal Solutions. You can find them at municipalsolutions.ca. Pick up another book. My goodness, and another thing, podcast is getting into books all of a sudden. Uh, But also pick up this book, The Harris Legacy, Reflections on a Transformational Premier. You can find that at theharrislegacy.ca. And, of course, the companion to these these ladies is their podcast, Not Reserving Judgment, which you can find wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in just a few days.